Philippians chapter 4. In this chapter we have the two of the very important themes that Paul's been working up to. You know, sometimes we think of the last chapter of a book of letter of Paul's as, well, just the little things he adds at the end. And uh, someone said earlier in the week, we often see Romans 16 as that. It's actually Romans 16 is actually very, very important. Um, uh, because it works out the Christian community, which is the working out of all the wonderful truths of the gospel that he shared earlier in that book. So, that's, yeah, that's stressing the importance of this last chapter. And, uh, and so the two issues he's been working up towards are, firstly, a dispute between two leaders, and which have been troubling Paul and robbing him of some of his joy, and secondly, to say thank you, although he doesn't actually say thank you, we'll look at that later, for the gift that they sent him while he was in prison, and it actually continued to support his ministry all the way through. So, I'm going to read it section by section and then comment. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now, I appeal to Euodia, and, and he repeats it actually, it's, English doesn't do that, but I appeal to Euodia, and I appeal to Syntyche, Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women. For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon, or the Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, except pr instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honourable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. As I've made clear in every talk, Paul's strategy has been throughout the letter to address the issue of division between two leaders in Philippi indirectly through teaching and examples of good and bad motivations. Now he issues, deals, sorry, now he addresses the issue directly. But in doing so, he starts with words of affection. So it's still lovingly expressed. Probably the most affectionate in his letters. You know, I love you and long to see you. You're my joy and crown. You're my reward. Talk about risk and rewards. You know, Paul was saying, my reward is you guys. And he describes them as the pinnacle of his ministry. And what comes next, therefore, in way of, by way of sort of rebuke, 
needs to be seen as loving and not harsh. Both women are addressed separately, which is why I changed when I read the uh, text there in English. Paul is not taking sides. Very, very important when you're dealing with disputes. Because as the book of Proverbs says, if you hear one side, it seems right. Until you hear the other. <laughs> okay. And uh, sometimes we don't do that sufficiently as leaders. We form a prejudice when we've heard one side of the story. Okay. And uh, also, so, so he addresses directly the individuals by name in, by way of correction. It's the only time in all these letters that he addresses people by name to correct them. Okay? Now, from a Western context of thinking, that means that's bad. We're naming and shaming them. Okay? And so the only thing that the whole church for two thousand years has known about these two ladies is they had a dispute. And so to us, that's, that's, that's bad. Actually, in this context and in that culture, it's exactly the opposite. Gordon Fee puts it this way. It talks about not naming people anywhere else and then says, but here he does. And not because you Euodia and Syntyche are the bad ones who need to be singled out. Precisely the opposite. Here are long-term friends and co-workers, leaders of the, in the believing community in Philippi, who have fallen on some bad times in terms of their doing the gospel. That he names them at all is evidence of friendship, since one of the marks of enmity in polemical, that's letters that have a go at you, Letter, polemical letters is that the enemies are left unnamed, thus denigrated by anonymity. Totally the opposite of the way we said it. Remember, when you read the Bible, you're reading an Eastern book. Something we have to, some of the things when we're working in the East where people haven't heard the gospel is we have to assure them that Christianity is not a Western religion. In fact, that's sometimes how you have to start with Alpha courses. Christianity. I forget what our first alpha course is, but is it what's it? unreasonable? What's the word? Uh, don't worry. You've all forgotten as well. But something about how we take it. Boring, irrelevant, and untrue. That's it. In Eastern context, you often have to say Christianity, Eastern, not Western. Okay? <laughs> so. Uh, so when you read the Bible, that's how you've got to look at it. And so this naming of them was affection, not the opposite. And everyone in the church would have known who the pro- what the problem was anyway. And, and, and it was in danger of affecting their unity and witness. Paul sandwiches his appeal with commendation. Uh, you know, so affection, then... These people worked very hard with me. They were my co-workers in the gospel. And it's clear from this letter and from Romans 16 that Paul had many women co-workers. They were particularly prominent in Philippi and elsewhere in Macedonia. The gospel began among them by the river. Lydia's house was open for the church to meet in. From their names, these Women were obviously Greek converts 
who were co-workers. They were almost certainly deacons of the church. So in leadership in the church, because this dispute was obviously threatening the unity of the whole church because of their leadership role. Okay? But it's true of all the churches in Macedonia. So... First, when Paul and Silas left, this is Philippi, when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them. Thessalonica, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. In Berea, also in, in Macedonia, as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the, Greek, of the prominent Greek women and men. So... That was the clear situation in the Macedonian church. So, uh, in my book on apostolic ministry, in the last chapter, I quote Barney Coombs, who founded the Salt and Light family of churches. Um, and he wrote, he took, took the same view as I was taking in terms of what we call complementarianism, dark heavy words. Uh, but we're both equal and men and women complement each other. So both, uh, uh, you know, so it's got hard to find words divide on that even though practice might. So, Barney Doom said, those, of you, those leaders who take the view that he did, that is, that uh, male eldership, he said, as long as they have as many co- women co-workers as Paul did. Mm. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. So, okay, if we're biblically convinced of our position as I am, then let's maintain that position that we biblical in practice, which means as many co-workers, female co-workers, as Paul did. Okay? We don't know exactly what the issue was, but all the hints from Paul's teaching would suggest that the following are at the heart of it. Piecing together the flow of the letter, the problem would appear to include envy, rivalry, self-centeredness, selfish ambition and pride, along with the stubbornness about backing down. The conflict could also include quarrelling and grumbling. This has all the hallmarks of status and power issues, which is what actually leads to many, many problems between leadership, men and women. <laughs> okay, status and power issues, with one or other seeking their own way. They are, it seems, falling prey to the Roman, that's a posh word for tendency, for status. Okay, and not only a Roman tendency. <laughs> it's a pretty universal st- tendency, in my view, in my experience, rather. One person is given particular responsibility to sort this out. He's not named, but the Philippians must have known exactly who it was. Uh, Was it someone from Paul's apostolic team already in Philippi, or a local leader who's well trusted? Uh, It's it's called my true yoke fellow. That is, true there means of good character. And it means someone who worked very closely with Paul. It's actually a masculine term, so this must have been a man who was going to help these two ladies sort out 
their differences particularly. Um, but these, pe these people, including a man called Clement, all worked together. They were not passive spectators. They were actively involved participants who struggled and suffered along with Paul to advance the gospel in the face of harsh opposition. Paul emphatically states that these two women were all members of his mission team, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. Okay. You're right with that. Good. And we've got to, if we're all right with it in principle, we've got to find ways of being, of putting it into practice. Now, how these women would have functioned in terms of gospel participation uh, was an important question then, an important question today. Um, because, remember, certainly inviting Philippi by this time, Paul did go around preaching at first, and the state girl followed him and got delivered and so on. But actually, probably, in that culture, women wouldn't have done that. But they were, but Paul puts equal emphasis on their sharing through the house churches and teaching that way as he does in terms of his walking in the streets and publicly proclaiming. Because culturally, women wouldn't have done that in that particular culture, as is the case in many parts of the world today. Um, and so, also, however, when we're planting churches in Europe, so obviously this applies to witnessing in the Muslim world and so on, but actually, increasingly in Europe, straight street preaching or large evangelistic gatherings may no longer be the best way forward. Okay? Um, as they weren't in Roman and Greek society. These women would not have been proclaiming on street corners, but were still engaged in gospel sharing. Unbelievers came into the house churches and into their meetings. Remember, again, when we say house church, if analysis of the houses in Corinth shows they would contain around 70 people. Okay. Simon Holly asked of someone who'd been studying disciple-making movements in North India, and he asked the guy who was reading it, uh, so what's the average size of your house churches? Oh, he said, we're around 130. <laughs> okay, so please, these house churches in the Bible and in many parts of the world were not limited to a Western land with big chairs. You only get 12 people in if you're lucky. And uh, even then, Westerners don't like sitting close to each other. It's funny. You know, I remember one of my first visits to Israel with these guys. Uh, they were having to uh, possibly move out of the place where they were meeting. Because, and the, the uh, expatriate community was saying, yes, because we're too close together. The Turkish community said, we don't want to move because we love being close together. <laughs> <laughs> and so, please, when you're thinking house church, do not, because a lot of the teaching in the West about it assumes about 10 to 12 people. Whereas actually, that is too small to build a real community of families. 
Okay, that's absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. So, uh, it's clear that women hosted those meetings. Lydia and the church in her house, Nympha in Colossae and the church in her house. Again, these are some of the scriptures that we don't often use when teaching on men and women's ministry. We use some of the scriptures I want Timothy 2. We don't use the scriptures that describe the practice of the early church. <laughs> okay. Clement was a Roman name, so he was likely to be a person of status in the town. Paul had a wide range of co-workers and he refers to their eternal reward in their commendation. Then he goes on the next section, having dealt with that, what he was working up towards, he then goes back to another of his main themes, what are the characteristics of the citizens of heaven, the new creation community that he's been talking about. Firstly, rejoicing, as it keeps coming up in this letter, and I've often noticed the amazing rejoicing of people under pressure, whether it's persecution or other things. I remember Andre saying to me once, that after they fled to the west of Ukraine and their whole team was there, he said, it's strange, our whole team is full of jokes and laughter. And... Uh, I've seen that in other parts of the world. So that's the first thing. Secondly, gentleness or courtesy. Can I just say, gentleness with one another is a very important characteristic of this new creation community. And it is actually also, the word that's used here for gentleness is used elsewhere in the Bible. Firstly, in the context of pulling down strongholds, it's not shouting off, it's by the meekness and gentleness of Christ we demolish strongholds of people's thinking. Okay? Important, because what you're doing then is operating in an opposite spirit for the stronghold. And so gent gentleness is also one of the qualifications for eldership. Some of the recent uh, high profile falls of people because of controlling leadership actually means they weren't qualified for eldership anyway. Because elders are gentle. There, one, two, three. And uh, it's important to remember that. And it's probably one of the characteristics of a leader insufficiently stressed in Western leadership development teaching. And ethical witness is one of the critical elements of mission. The Lord is near, it says, possibly referring to his coming soon, but probably also referring to his current closeness to us and enabling us to be the community of God's people. And then not worrying, but praying. For me, and it could be this true of some others, I sort of worry first, then pray. <laughs> okay? And then you sort of get there in the end. Anyone else like that? Or, yeah. <laughs> or as our friend Paul Reed once said, prayer sometimes is 
worrying out loud. <laughs> uh, but the uh, corporate prayer, prayer is very important in this context. We often take the references to prayer in the New Testament as being individual, and it is important to pray individually. You know, as Jesus said, go into your cupboard. The only, the only place where they had a door lock in Palestinian in houses in Israel at that time would have been the cup, store cupboard where everything was all the supplies were stored. So the only place you could go and lock the door was there. Okay, and uh, so it's uh, so that is important, but actually corporate prayer is very important. And the church in Philippi was born in corporate prayer. And our movement was born in corporate prayer, but it's one of the things that I think we're in danger of neglecting now. Okay. And also, the importance of, yes, praying in tongues and so on, but it's also very important have corporate prayer where we can say amen to each other's prayers mm-hmm. and really get behind things. Sometimes we're losing that a bit, I think. Okay. So, then think differently, Paul says. The Christian community thinks differently. How we feed our minds is particularly important in this media-saturated age. But it was obviously very important in Paul's time as well. And Paul addressed the need to feed our minds on what is positive by setting out these positive characteristics, whatever is lovely, whatever is honourable, and so on. Firstly, these are all characteristics of the redeemed life in Christ. Truth, gospel truth, and theological truth, meditating upon it, but also in our day, not spreading falsities, fake news, etc. Uh, you know... I so often heard Christians repeat something they've read about something which turns out to be untrue. If you don't know whether it's true or not, just because you've read it on some Twitter feed or something, don't quote it unless you know it's true. And if it's, if it's arguing with other people, it's best not to quote it at all. Because we're not meant to be like that. And so... Um, true and honourable. Remember, this is a shame on a culture. And I do believe that we need a restoration of what is honourable rather than cynically pulling each other down. Be careful even with English humour when you're operating in a cross-cultural context. You know, English humour, one of the characteristics is if you really like someone, you mock them publicly. And if you're with a group of English people, they understand. If you're not, if you're with a multicultural group, that strange English habit doesn't work. In fact, I was doing a conference in the East Coast, Scylla and I were hosting it, and uh, one person from England, I will not name him, kept pulling, kept joking about us from the front row of the conference. And someone came up to me after. Is it a new frontiers value 
Dishonor your leaders. And he's genuinely asking. Okay. I'm just getting a few things off my chest in this last session. So, just, including concern for justice issues, pure, very important in the sexual context, but also uh, pure and free from socially destructive thinking. It's not just sexual, so on. Meanwhile, however, sorry, however, it also means appreciating what is good in our various cultures as well as being free from what's not good. I'm just going to give you some quotes, a lot of them this time. I tried not to do too many, but this is so important, this point, in how we look at culture. Tom Wright put it this way. There are many, in commenting on this scripture, there are many things out there in the wider world which, because of God's goodness in creation, really are true, holy, upright, pure, attractive, well-reputed, virtuous and praiseworthy. Christians should not be and then he uses a very English term, which I haven't clue how to translate, should not be mealy mouthed about this. Anyone? You put that in proper English. Well, it means we we shouldn't be shy about saying that, okay? Tom's great, but, you know, sometimes he uses words like that. And this is writing as Tom Wright, not as N.T. Wright as well. Okay, so... We should be the first to give praise where praise is due and equally to think through these things, to ponder them, to inquire how they work and the effect they have. Okay. Gordon Fee, commenting on the expression whatever is lovely, says this. Here is the word that throws the net broadly so as to include conduct that has little to do with morality in itself but is recognised as admirable via the world at large. In common parlance, common speech, that is, this word could refer to a Beethoven symphony as well as the work of Mother Teresa among the poor of Calcutta. The former is lovely and enjoyable, the latter is admirable as well as moral. Put whatever style of music you like into that. It's not just classical music, okay? Uh, so you can put jazz stuff in, rock stuff, you know, reggae, ska, whatever's good, whatever go, you know, whatever you like. And he then goes on to, Fee then goes on to say that often we legalistically exclude certain things from the world, but the big stuff in the world, and he names materialism, hedonism, that's pleasure, nationalism and individualism, creep into us from the culture and we think they're all right. So we don't listen to, you know, some churches don't listen to certain rock music, but uh, are nationalistic. You've let the world in, and you're doing, having the characteristics of the world. And by not appreciating what's good in the world, in culture, we uh, still can absorb what's bad in the world without even thinking about it. Individualism as well. I remember once I was in the States, and they'd asked me to do a demolishing strongholds conference. And I went through all the strongholds that I teach on. And then I came to individualism. And one person said to me afterwards, I thought that was a virtue. 
Okay. Forgive me, Americans. Yeah, I'm sure you don't think that. But uh, no, individualism is not a virtue. It's a me-centeredness that is contrary to the gospel. Okay. So. And Tim Keller, and this is one of my favourite quotes, I use it whenever I'm teaching on culture, so I'll throw it in here. Every human culture is an extremely complex mixture of brilliant truth, marred half-truths, and over-resistance to the truth. Every culture will have some idolatrous discourse within it, and yet every culture will have some witness to God's truth in it. God gives out good gifts of wisdom, talent, beauty, and skill, completely without regard for merit. He casts them across a culture like seed in order to enrich, brighten, and preserve the world. Without this understanding of culture, Christians will tend to think they can live self-sufficiently, isolated from, and unblessed by the contribution of those in the world. Without an appreciation for God's gracious display of his wisdom in the broader culture, Christians may struggle to understand why non-Christians often exceed Christians in moral practice, wisdom and skill. The doctrine of sin means that as believers, we are never as good as our right worldview should make us. At the same time, the doctrine of our creation in the image of God and an understanding of common grace remind us that non-believers are never as flawed as their false worldview should make them. Okay? That's... As Tim Keller, I find it so helpful. And when I'm teaching on culture, appreciating the different cultures we're reaching, it's so, so important. And when I'm training people going to other culture, I say, the first thing you must do is learn to appreciate the good things that are in the culture you're reaching, rather than just focusing on the bad things. Okay, so maybe I've dwelt on this subject too much, but it's important as we seek to appreciate the various European cultures as well as the cultures of new, new immigrants to Europe um, and, and the good needs to be appreciated and enjoyed and incorporated into our church life in those cultures. Okay. So, then there was a response to the Philippians' generous gift. Now, I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me. I'm reading the scripture now. But you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. You know, sending money so you've got food in prison. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then travelled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. That was when he went to the next town. And they're only new Christians. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus 
In other words, I'm not asking for more money. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send their greetings, and all the rest of God's people send you greetings too, especially those in Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's say, Paul has been criticised by a lot of people that study the Bible, because this section is very strange to Western eyes. <laughs> Firstly, they've sent him a gift. Why wait till the end of the letter to even refer to it? You know, our way, if someone sends you a gracious gift, you would say, first, thank you so much for this gracious gift. So blessed as it came just at the right time. <laughs> and uh, then uh, we go on to perhaps give some other news. First Paul writes right to the end of the letter and does everything else and just says, Oh, by the way, this gives me simply. Why? Epaphroditus had almost died bringing the gift. It would be costly all round. And then, why start with, at last, you finally got round to send me a gift after a long period without doing so? <laughs> Which is what he says. <laughs> Though he does modify that by acknowledging they've not been able to do so. Then, I didn't really need the gift because I'm okay with whatever circumstances I'm in. <laughs> But it was good for you to make a sacrifice. (laughs) And he never says thank you. (laughs) So what's going on here? There are very clear biblical principles about handling money. Generosity. Accountability. Dependence on God. But there are also huge cultural implications which vary from culture to culture in which the way money is handled. Okay? And sometimes we try and apply not just the biblical principles, accountability, generosity and dependence on God, which was so wonderfully explained to us yesterday morning, But we add our cultural thinking about money. So, because there are huge implications regarding how money is handled. In whatever culture we're operating, we need to understand some of the implications of giving and supporting, particularly if we're operating cross-culturally. And many of us have seen difficulties in handling this. Okay, so... What was the culture here? Now, you know, I know you think, oh, David Devonish all just tells us the cultural background to everything, and, and I do feel reluctant sometimes to do that because I also believe in what Tyndale thought, that even the plough, who wants to have the Bible, so that even the person operating the plough, you know, the humblest person, can read it and understand it. 
So you don't need to know all the cultural background to be fed by the Bible, but it helps us to understand what the Bible is saying because reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. So, uh, and the, he is dealing with a very, very important cultural issue of that time and in many countries today. The cultural issue in New Testament times was patronage and how relationships were conducted in the Mediterranean world of that time. All of this is important for us to understanding of scriptures. There were two particular relationships for gift giving. The first was the relationship of friendship. And friends just gave gifts to each other and you, and you didn't say thank you for the gift because that would have implied the other way of gift giving which was patronage, which I'll come on to explain. So friends just did it. You reciprocated, but you didn't say a big thank you because uh, you that's how friends operate. So I'm not saying don't say thank you. I'm saying that was the culture of the time. Patronage, where a person looks to their wealthy benefactor for support or for access to important people. Okay? You know, access to important people is... That totally misunderstood scripture in the book of Proverbs that the man's gift makes way for him and ushers him into the presence of the gift of the grace. It's not having nothing to do with spiritual gifts. It's if you pay some money, you get into a good place. Okay? So, uh, the. But I won't go into that. Um, but when. But. Most people who are less, than, unless you were very rich and influential, to exist in that world, you had to have a patron. Okay? And that person would support you, would give you access to the authorities, would um, enable you to live if you fell on hard times. They felt obligated to do that, so your patron. But you had an obligation to constantly honour them, speak well of them, never contradict them, never say anything contrary to them, because they were your patron. Is that? Are you, are you with me here? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Paul never wanted to yield to patronage. That's why he offended some of the wealthier Corinthians, because Corinth had a lot of wealthy people in it, unlike many of the other churches, by refusing to receive their kind gifts to support him. Why? And that's why he made tents. Why? Because it would have put him in obligation to the wealthy in the church. That's one reason why the wealthy Corinthians were pleased with the super apostles, because they were willing to receive the benefaction and patronage of those Corinthians. Paul resisted this system, even though it meant he had to work. Yet he also redefined this terminology in the light of Christ. It's amazing. Paul is so good at this contextual stuff. He said, okay, I won't receive uh, patronage from you. You won't, pay, you won't give me support 
because I don't want to be under obligation to you. Because actually, I'm your patron. I'm bringing the gospel to you. But the words of the patronage system he used to describe the gospel. So one of the main words in the patronage system was Harris, which he has taken out of that context and meant to mean grace. Charis. And you had to, they, so the benefactor showed grace to you that it created obligations. Paul took that and said, yes, God is our wonderful benefactor, but we don't have to do anything to deserve it. Within the patronage system, you constantly have to deserve being continued to be supported by your patron. So what Paul often does, he takes things in the culture, totally transforms them. You know, he even used the uh, Greek name for God. Philos. He didn't say Chartway all the time. He took the pagan word, just like English people do, by saying God. And the Germans do by saying God. You take the pagan word, which has massive implications for our evangelism in certain sectors. I don't want to get into that because it'll upset you. So, the. So, God is our patron. He's shown favour to us. We have access to favour, Romans 5. We have access into, that's where the word grace is particularly used in a patronage way. We have access into the favour in which we stand. So, Paul does that. I taught this once at a particular conference in the East, and uh, Evan Rogers, who was living in Dubai at that time, said, Oh, he's talking about Wasta which is the Arabic word for favour. That's why I said it. So he went up to his room and wrote, because a lot of Arabic speakers in the conference, and wrote a song called Wasta, okay, which he then came down a few hours later and we sang and it's been sung in uh, Arab, Arabic context since that time. Okay. It's, that's what Paul did with the word habits. So, now in this respect, Paul's relationship with the Philippians was unique and unusual. He seemed to accept their favour even by staying in Lydia's house. It was seen to be the only church where Paul did not work for his living. As this account makes clear, the Philippian church even supported him when he moved to other parts of Macedonia, as well as later in Corinth. They sent money so that he could stop tent making. Paul were, and he, they also were the example of supporting the poor in Jerusalem. And what Paul managed to do, therefore, was to keep the relationship with the Philippian church on the basis of friendship, not patronage. We can see this in the tone in which he wrote this letter, and what he was waiting for from the Philippians was not their money. So why he says, it's been a long time since you gave me any money, which is what he writes. But what he's talking about, it's a long time since we've had this friendship, reciprocal friendship relationship. He was looking for their friendship rather than their money. Okay, and their partnership in the gospel. So he's, if in this section, he's appreciating and praising the friendship he had with this unique church. 
Paul's history of the history of the Philippian support for him over the years is a celebration of their friendship together. So, and as part of their friendship, they had met his needs whilst in prison. And Paul said, "How can I reciprocate if friends give gifts to each other? Now, when he's preaching there, that's fine. Perhaps he do it when he's in prison." I said, "My patron will do it for you. My God." will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So I can't come, I can't give you anything, but my God, my patron, will make sure that all my obligations of friendship are fulfilled. That's the context of that scripture. A wonderful truth. God can make up because he is our patron. Okay, time's gone. I'll just... A few concluding remarks. Uh, just to say also that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is actually in that context. I know we use it in lots of other contexts, and that's often legitimate. But it's actually in the context of God's financial provision for us. It's the context of that scripture. People use it in other words of Christian athlete, British athlete, who's won lots of um, gymnastic competitions in various games. Asked why she didn't get bullet tonight. Oh, because he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. She said that in the interview, which is wonderful. The only problem is if she lost, the same would have been true. Because <laughs> that's the context here. Pulled out of money, but he can do all things through God who strengthens Okay, so just be careful how you use that. It's not just for victories, it's also for when, you don't, when you're not victorious. Although we're living in very different cultural circumstances, this section has a lot to teach us. We need to learn how to handle finances cross-culturally. We need, as Westerners, not to give the impression of patronage and the creation of obligations while serving poorer situations. We need to take into account the various cultural practices and also the laws of different nations in how we've handled funds. We need to be clear on accountability, the avoidance of creating dependency, but also how genuine friendship and partnership in the gospel can be demonstrated today. Okay. And I've found that. I've got some very poor students, and they feel off to pay my airfare and <laughs> give me a gift. I think, well, I'm going to be criticised by others in that sphere for it. Because why are you giving all of this question? But then you also can be misused. Like one particular country I was working in, they started looking for me as a patron. Very, very different. And so I made sure I never went to any of the meetings about money. I just sat somewhere else. I went somewhere else. And only other people did. But then sometimes the leader would come up to me and say, hey, but you're, they haven't been able to supply our needs, but you're our father. I have the obligation as the father to provide for them. And I have to walk free of that. But we need to work out how to apply these particular things. If I was their spiritual father, it was because I took, took the gospel to them, not because I'm responsible therefore for all their financial pressures. And that's hard. How do we deal with it? Well, I thought, you do something tough. 
Okay, he then goes on with his doxology and sends his greetings to everyone, and sends greetings from Caesar's household to that particularly touched the Philippians. And may the grace of God be with your spirit. Hallelujah. Bless you. I hope that's been helpful in uh, studying this book together.